Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burn. Tonight, Canadian rock legend Tom Cochran joins me for an extended chat about music, songwriting, what it means to be a Canadian artist, and his many memories of his longtime friend, the late Gordon Lightfoot. We go looking for a Sasquatch with the help of a student society at Trent University in Peterborough and find out why the mystery surrounding what is really considered a mythical creature continues to captivate so many. We head to London to find out what the mood is like there ahead of Saturday's coronation of King Charles III. It's been a tough winter for many in Britain. Brexit continues to bite. There's labor strife. So are they ready to embrace the pomp, circumstance, and ceremony of officially welcoming a new king? But first, we head to Ottawa and the latest China-influence-related crisis to hit the Trudeau government and find out why there are growing calls for more accountability, including resignations by senior officials and government ministers. We'll start tonight in Ottawa because there was quite the site in committee today, a parliamentary committee today looking into allegations of Chinese interference in the Canadian political process. A Trudeau testified, not Justin, not the prime minister, but his brother, Alexandre, Alexander, the younger Trudeau volunteered to appear at this committee to face questions about allegations that Beijing targeted the foundation set up in his father's name, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, to influence politics in this country. The allegations, of course, the nuance being his brother in particular. Now, the committee is investigating the circumstances around a pair of 2016 and 2017 donations. Now, these donations were the whole process was set up uh, quite a bit earlier before uh, Justin Trudeau became prime minister. And he's no longer involved in the foundation, by the way, the uh, the prime minister isn't. Um, but donations from Chinese billionaire Zhang Bin and another Chinese businessman by the name of Niu Jianchang that totaled about $140,000. Now, Trudeau said the foundation, and he said this many, many times today under a lot of questions, had not been part of any foreign interference attempts by Beijing. Here's part of his opening statement. There was no foreign interference, no possibility of interference, no intention or means of interference at or through the Trudeau Foundation. He was unequivocal about that. He was pressed, though, by opposition MPs on several issues around governance of the foundation itself, which is an issue another issue, but also just how aware the foundation should have been that they might be a target for something like this. Did they recognize that they could be a target of Beijing's influence attempts? And if so, and if they weren't, if so, what do they do about it? If they weren't, why not? Here to help us answer that and other questions surrounding what is yet another series of so-called China influence crises in Ottawa is Charles Burton, a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and a former Canadian diplomat in Beijing, a regular on the show about these issues. Charles, thanks. Welcome back. Good to speak with you, Ben. It was interesting to see uh, uh, another Trudeau testifying today. And he's written a book about China. I mean, he, he understands China quite well. Um, what did you make of what he had to say? Well, I'm not sure that he understands China the way that you and me do. Um, you know, he's obviously got quite special treatment from the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party in all sorts of ways. And I don't think he really um, has figured figured that out. But I guess when you're yeah. a Trudeau, you're used to getting exceptionally good treatment. Um, you know, he appeared for the committee trying to to um, suggest that everything is fine at the Trudeau Foundation, despite, I think, all but three of their board of directors uh, having resigned over this uh, China donation business. 
And, uh, you know, I think perhaps he thought that his charisma and charm would, would uh, you know, set the issue aside and close it off, which is what he wanted to do. He felt there was no point the committee, uh, the Ethics Committee of the House of Commons discussing these matters. But I think the upshot of it, you know, was quite the opposite, not quite as bad as Prince Andrew talking to the BBC. But, you know, I think the I, I think he, he certainly made it worse than it was before by his uh, answers that weren't really very uh, convincing. What I found interesting, and because the governance issue around the actual foundation is another matter, and it's a really interesting one, but kind of tough to dig into uh, right here, right now. What I was interested in is the idea that the Trudeau Foundation itself didn't recognize, even as early as 2013, that they could be a target for something like this. And I think what was interesting about Alexander's testimony was that he sort of said, well, of course, we're not a target. These are upstanding. Like, there can't be a link between these upstanding business people looking to donate money to the U.S of tea or to us and anything nefarious going on back at home. It seemed like it was a real blind spot for him and perhaps, perhaps for his brother too. Yes. I I mean, yeah, we don't know what, what uh, the prime minister really knows about this, but you know, Alexandre Trudeau, as you say, suggests that Zhang Bin and Niu Gengsheng who um, provided the, the donation, they, they promised two hundred thousand um, dollars, and in the end, gave one hundred and forty thousand. Um, you know, it said they're honorable men, but uh, you know, we know that Mr. Zhang is a member of the Standing Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, and we knew that, you know, back when he was, for reasons unclear, attending a fundraiser uh, for the Prime Minister in Vancouver. I mean, as a Chinese citizen, he couldn't donate any funds to Mr. Trudeau. So why was he there in the room? Um, was he coordinating uh, proxy donations to the Trudeau campaign? It, you know, we just don't have the details. And uh, it's very clear that, that his China Cultural Industry Association is, um, you know, explicitly loyal to the Chinese Communist Party and the United Front Work Department. But... Uh, Mr. Alexandre Trudeau suggests that couldn't possibly be so. Uh, he did not believe the Globe and Mail report of the recorded conversation between a Chinese diplomat and Mr. Zhang saying that the donation by Mr., you know, through Mr. Zhang's proxy company, the Golden Eagle International, would be entirely refunded by the government of China. Alexandre Trudeau just thinks that that report's not true. He hasn't heard the, the recording. He doesn't believe the Globe and Mail. And uh, in general, I think, you know, that all of the aspects of this that that look pretty bad for the prime minister um, were brought to the fore by Mr. Trudeau's appearance before a fairly sharp committee that I think treated him really quite well on the whole. You know, they weren't hostile, but they certainly presented a lot of facts that Mr. Trudeau simply tried to, to discard as being uh, unlikely or made up, whereas we have pretty strong evidence that they're true. I mean, I don't think that the, the Globe and Mail would be reporting on a, on a, on a telephone conversation between Mr. Zhang and, the, and an embassy official if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't actually a, a factual thing. But he just doesn't want to believe what he thinks will reflect badly on the Trudeau Foundation and himself.
Yeah, and it's understandable, of course. I mean, he's invested a lot of time. It's a foundation set up in – I mean, of course, it's a foundation that was set up with a lot of taxpayer money, but it's a foundation set up yeah. in memory of his father. So, I mean, I can see why the, the – the, and, and it does do good work. So the, the ability to want to protect it, I can see that uh, – I can see why he would want to do that. Uh, but one of the things that, again, I found a, a, bit, a bit odd was just the um, – I, I, I mean – the idea that they even back in 2013 they kept he kept talking about well that was then and this is now right that since mm-hmm. Xi Jinping came to power things have changed back in 2013 you know um, academic diplomacy was a big thing and yet it seems to me you were raising the alarm bells about this stuff years and years ago a lot of people were yes I mean certainly you know as soon as I I saw that there was a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference attending what was put on the prime minister's itinerary as a private meeting that we subsequently, you know, learned about in detail because photographs of the prime minister with Mr. Zhang and, and others uh, at, at this fundraiser were published inside China in overseas Chinese work uh, publications of the Communist Party's United Front Work Department. So, you know, it, uh, it, you know, it immediately set off a whole lot of alarms for me and then, you know, when the when the when we got the revelation of the recording that in fact the money was not being donated by a Chinese citizen who had enormous admiration for our former Prime Minister Trudeau, but in fact was being entirely paid for by the Chinese government, that just confirmed what I suspected all along that this was not about uh, you know a, a charitable donation, but really about an operation to to uh, create obligation and and influence uh, in in the Trudeau family uh, for the Chinese regime. And the fact that Mr. Zhang was invited to attend a fundraising event with the prime minister, you know, simultaneous with his very generous donation to the Trudeau Foundation does, you know, pretty strong circumstantial evidence that something's going on there that doesn't smell right and deserves further investigation. They constantly make decisions around what is a credible threat, what is a non-credible threat. They are professionals who make that evaluation. And what I'm saying is, even if it's a less than threshold threat, according to their views, if it regards an MP or an MP's family, it should be passed up uh, going forward. This shows an appalling breakdown in leadership on part of the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister and the Prime Minister alone is responsible for the machinery of government. And for the Prime Minister not to know about this, not to be interested in this, I, I think indicates, uh, calls into question uh, the PMO's handle on the machinery of government. So that was, of course, the Prime Minister and then Michael Chong, the Conservative MP. So the Prime Minister now says Canada's intelligence agencies are being directed to immediately inform MPs if there are any threats against them, regardless of whether the threats are considered credible. Trudeau says that CSIS never told anyone about information it received two years ago about China threatening Chong's family members living in Hong Kong. Trudeau says CSIS was asked to brief Chong at the time after China publicly said it would sanction him for criticizing Beijing's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. Uyghur Muslims rather. Charles Burton uh, of the McDowell Laurier Institute is with us. Uh, Charles, this one continues. I mean, it was you know, there's a huge meeting yesterday between the Prime Minister, uh, his national security advisor, the head of CSIS, and Michael Chong. This one feels like, um, I mean, of all the allegations that we've seen around interference and the government dropping the ball, this one feels like a real problem for them. Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, we know that the the Chinese state um, 
surprised to get information about people in Canada who are critical of the regime, whether they're Uyghurs or Tibetans or democracy activists or Hong Kong um, Hong Kongers or Taiwan people. You know, if they are actively critical of China um, and they have relatives in China, the relatives will be visited and may be subject to different sanctions, such as children can't go to university or someone lose their job and that sort of thing. It's quite, you know, this is a, a pervasive problem. And of course, it has an enormous dampening effect on uh, persons of Chinese origin in Canada who would like to speak out, but dare not do so because their innocent relatives back in China may suffer quite serious consequences. But this is qualitatively different. This is about, um, you know, harassment of the family of a member of our parliament because he put forward a motion condemning the uh, Uyghur genocide, uh, you know, a motion that was passed unanimously by the House of Commons. So, you know, this is really an interference in our parliamentary process. And regardless of whether it was successful or not, because Mr. Chong, for these political reasons, has avoided all contact with his family in Hong Kong uh, for some years. But, but we know from the intelligence that not only was the Chinese um, uh, agents attempting to find out more about Mr. Chong's family to try and pressure him, and send out, I guess, uh, a signal to other MPs who have family in China that they could, that their families could also suffer consequences if they're seen as being unfriendly to China. But we know the name of the diplomat who did it, a diplomat who is still serving in the Chinese consulate in Toronto. So, you know, like, if you don't expel uh, a diplomat for engaging in harassment of the family of an MP because of their engaging in parliamentary duties, then what, you know, wh when does anybody get declared persona non grata and sent back to Beijing? This is the mystery. You know, the government's known about it for two years and evidently has done nothing to, to stop it. Yeah, we don't know who knew what when, right? As always in this story, we're never entirely sure who knew what when. The CSIS report clearly went somewhere. We don't know who saw it. We certainly know that Michael Chong was never advised of it, which in of itself seems like a dereliction of duty. Uh, who pays here, do you think? And do we need a public inquiry now? It feels like every time this happens, you're like, okay, well, now we need, we really need to get to the, get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, for, for a few days uh, earlier this week, Every time the opposition asked um, Minister Mendicino, the Minister of Public Safety, um, you know, when did you hear about this and when did the Prime Minister hear about it, they, um, they wouldn't answer the question. And then all of a sudden we hear today from the Prime Minister in a scrum that they only heard about it when they read about it in the Globe and Mail. In other words, they're trying to blame CSIS for not having transmitted the information properly. And as you heard in the clip, it's, you know, the new thing as well. If there's anything involving a parliamentarian, you should definitely let us know. It looks to me like, like they're setting up uh, the, um, the firing of the head of CSIS and maybe even Mendicino. But, you know, from my point of view, like, it, it doesn't matter who knew what when. The fact is that the government failed in a very serious um, function of government, which is to protect the integrity of our democratic process. So, you know, I, I think if if the report had reached Mendicino um, and he just sat on it, then rightly he should take responsibility and resign. If it didn't reach Mendicino, um, you know, and, and CSIS 
for whatever reason, decided to to put a lid on it. That's also the minister's responsibility. You know, there's a principle of ministerial responsibility in the Westminster system. He should still resign. And I really feel that this matter is so serious that it, it it's it's something that suggests that the prime minister should also take responsibility and and resign as well, because this is no small deal uh, in terms of our system. You know, the fact that nothing bad may have happened, we don't know what ha- what's happened to to uh, Mr. Chong's family. But the fact that a Chinese diplomat was engaged in this activity um, and was not declared persona non grata and that no effort was made to to uh, assist Mr. Chong to ensure that he can carry out his functions as a parliamentarian without having to think about whether or not his family are being menaced and harassed back in China. You know, this is this is fundamental sort of stuff that, that really does suggest that the government should take more responsibility than simply saying, we'll tell CSIS to let us know if this happens again. Charles Burton, as always, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time. Good to speak with you, Ben. This is Alfred Hitchcock speaking. In the past, I have introduced you to many kinds of people, murderers, thieves, swindlers, many of them geniuses at the business of crime. Now I'd like you to meet an entirely different person, an average sort of fellow who leads a very normal life. The big difference is that his story is true. Alfred Hitchcock there with, you know, perhaps one of the most uh, commonly used plot lines in many movies and books and crime novels and so on. And that is the notion of the wrong man. That, of course, is the trailer to the movie The Wrong Man with Henry Fonda back in 1959. The idea that a person is convicted of a crime they did not commit and how they prove their innocence. Again, the stuff of many a movie and crime novel. Inherently, we trust the justice system to get it right. We believe if we've done nothing wrong, that that will be recognized and that mistakes, if they are made, are quickly realized and rectified. But we all know too well that for many wrongfully accused, there is no storybook ending. There are many high profile cases in this country alone, names that we're familiar with, like Donald Marshall, David Milgard, Guy Paul Morin. And there are many more with which you are probably not. Names like Connie Oakes, who spent more than four years in prison for a murder she did not commit. Leighton Hay, who spent 12 years in jail for a murder he was not involved with. How do they get there? Well, they range from imaginary crimes, you know, false guilty pleas, flawed forensics, mistaken witness testimony, and so on. You can find some of them uh, on the case You can find some of those cases on the Canadian Registry of Wrongful Convictions. 83 names in all. It was just set up and released a little earlier this year. But it's just the tip of the iceberg, really, says those who put it together. There are many other cases out there of wrongful convictions. Uh, Again, the list was posted online in February and co-created by my next guest, who has spent decades trying to right judicial wrongs. And joining me now is author and scholar Kent Roach. He's a professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto and founder, co-founder of the Canadian Registry of Wrongful Convictions. His latest book is called Wrongfully Convicted, Guilty Pleas, Imagined Crimes, and What Canada Must Do to Safeguard Justice. Kent, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, good good evening, Ben. Tell me about the book and the registry. I mean, really, this is something that I think people are sort of 
kind of aware of. We know the big names. We know the big cases. Uh, but this is really to raise awareness about the many cases that we don't hear about. And you think this is still a big problem in Canada? Yes. I mean, uh, it's been two. Uh, the last time we had a public inquiry was 2008. And I think as investigative journalism, there's less resources. And so we felt it was important to tell every story. And so we define wrongful convictions as cases where the person was convicted and it's later overturned on the basis of new evidence that was not presented in in court. So we don't make judgments about innocence or factual innocence because the legal system doesn't. And as you said, this is really the tip of the iceberg because it measures remedied wrongful convictions, not those that don't have remedies. And although we launched with 83 in February, we'll soon be adding four more cases uh, to the, the registry. One of the things I try to do in the book is I think when people think of wrongful convictions, they think of David Milgard, Donald Marshall, Guy Paul Moran. These are all what I call whodunit cases. They're, they're cases where uh, the police, the prosecutors, the courts got the wrong person. And those cases still do happen. But one of the surprising things as uh, uh, we looked, uh, we, we did the research on the registry is 15 of the cases involve people who pled guilty. So not, right. you know, people that, that kind of gave up. Uh, and But I would suggest made perhaps rational choices given given the, the the difficult positions they were in, and a third of the cases concerned cases where no crime was committed. You, you point to a couple of examples that I think uh, I'm not sure people will have heard of. Uh, Jamie Gladue was a case that I, I, bear, I didn't know particularly well, but one that you were uh, involved with slightly. And this is one you think really does represent some of the issues at hand here about why people who find themselves uh, up against a judicial process will choose to plead guilty even if they or, or in circumstances that where justice isn't served necessarily. Yeah. So, yes. So, so Jamie Gladue was a woman who was an indigenous woman from British Columbia. She's charged with murder of her uh, uh, husband. There was some evidence that her husband had been abusive. Her lawyers were thinking about running a self-defense claim. But at the last minute, after a jury was selected, probably didn't include very many visibly indigenous people, Miss Gladue uh, pled guilty to manslaughter. And, and by pleading guilty to manslaughter, she avoids the mandatory life imprisonment that you get in Canada still if you're convicted of murder. And so the case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada where it became a, a, a big sentencing precedent and I represented Aboriginal legal services in the Supreme Court. But it was only really later that we when we looked at the case, and of course she's not included in the registry because she hasn't received a, a remedy, but she might be not guilty even of manslaughter because if someone kills another person in reasonable self-defense. But I think for very rational and understandable reasons, she didn't want to roll the dice and risk life imprisonment, which would have uh, 
taken her away for a minimum of 10 years from her young children. And and of the 15 remedied uh, guilty plea wrong convic- wrongful convictions, 11 are either women and or indigenous and or with mental health challenges. So there's a definite trend that uh, of, of, of who is making these guilty pleas, even though they are not guilty or may have a valid defense. And you look into a case as well that I think many people will know, which is the case of Charles Smith, who frequently testified as an expert, but uh, was found to have, I mean, certainly according to the uh, investigations that went on after, found to have greatly exaggerated a lot of the, basically put people in jail when the no, no crime had been committed. Yes. And, and you know, so... I, the book goes back and it looks at the uh, people that were wrongfully convicted because of Charles Smith. Uh, uh, five uh, women, many of them were young, single mothers, three racialized men. But we also update the stories. And in fact, one that we'll be adding to the registry. But, but even in the book, we talk about James Turpin, uh, of course, Smith is no longer uh, uh, testifying before courts, uh, but this involves also concerns about uh, shaken baby syndrome, which is a very controversial uh, diagnosis. And uh, at the end of the day, even the prosecutor uh, uh, pulled uh, the prosecution because the defense was able on the second trial and with new evidence to undermine the uh, expert evidence not given by Smith, but by someone else that led to the first conviction. There is a thread that's being tied here by you, though, which is that a lot of the same factors that have led to wrongful convictions in some of those very high profile cases it continue to exist today. And this is a problem. I think there's an understanding amongst most people that sometimes the legal system gets it wrong. And I mean, I, as I was pointing out by playing the wrong man as the intro, um, you know, it, it is the thing of, of dystopian sort of, you know, crime novels and movies, you know, the, the wrongfully accused. We expect the system to fix it, though, fast. And we don't understand that people often find themselves in situations where they plead guilty, as you pointed out. So the threads you're trying to tie together here are significant because I don't think we often look at wrongful convictions in the way that you're approaching them. Yes, well, and and you know, hopefully it's 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 timely because there is a bill before Parliament which would replace the role of the federal minister of justice, who is kind of the last chance after you've exhausted all of your appeals, and would replace his role with an independent commission, a, a miscarriage of justice review commission, and that bill has been introduced in Parliament, but it hasn't moved beyond first reading, and so one of the reasons why I wrote the book at this time is that it might be easy for people to say, oh, you know, wrongful convictions, we've kind of cured that. We don't have the big DNA exonerations. Why do we need a commission? I think we do need a commission that has public powers to investigate because right now the people that are doing the investigations are the UBC Innocence Project, Innocence Canada, often volunteers that, um, you know, have a lot of other things that they're trying to do. 
and rely upon charitable giving as opposed to public uh, funds. So I think this is a time where we can make some progress. Now, I don't think the bill is perfect. uh, And so, you know, when it gets to committee, hopefully there'll be some amendments. But I'm also concerned that it could die on the order paper before the next election, because there's not a lot of constituencies for the wrongfully convicted, especially when you think that until they're recognized as wrong, wrongfully convicted, the public sees them as dangerous criminals. Would you, Ted, when you were looking at the idea of, of, this, of, of this commission that looked into this, this federal commission looking into it, they've done their work, we're waiting for the government to, to act on it, but you get the feeling that talk about being tough on crime is getting we're, we're, the pendulum is swinging back the other way. Do you, do you worry that's going to get in the way of this one? Yes, I, 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 I do. And I think we've seen that, that even though the government has uh, gotten rid of some mandatory penalties, they haven't touched the mandatory life sentence for murder. And when you look at a lot of these false guilty pleas in the Smith cases and others, I think that mandatory penalty contributes because it makes it certain that if the person is convicted, they're looking at at least 10, sometimes 25 years before uh, they can go before a parole board. The other thing with the new bill is it doesn't look at uh, whether the facts in that led to the sentencing of the person was uh, were, were wrong. And so New Zealand has just come up with their own criminal case review commission. And their very first case was a case where they sent it back to the courts saying, basically, you thought this person was 17 when you sentenced him, but now we've done our investigations and he was only 15. So, you know, are you going to change the sentence? And that's not included in this bill, Bill C-40, that's before par- Parliament. So it isn't, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough environment to enact anything that could be seen as, uh, as for the accused or for the prisoner. What do you tell people then who look at, it, who look at these sorts of stories and, and inherently think, listen, if you've done nothing wrong, it won't happen to you? Um, you know, that the wrong man is something that happens in movies and that most people in jail are guilty and those who say they aren't are probably lying about it. I mean, I, th- I hear that a lot, right? That people aren't necessarily, as you pointed out, don't necessarily lean towards sympathy to those who've pleaded guilty or convicted of serious crimes. What do you tell people about why this matters as an issue of sort of fundamental justice? Well, I mean... I think one issue is it is possible to happen even to people that are more advantaged. So one of the cases that I talk about in the book is uh, Jacques Delisle, uh, who uh, was a a retired judge uh, who was wrongfully convicted of of the murder of his wife and and circumstantial Mm -hmm. evidence contributed to it. I also, though, think that, you know, especially in the whodunit cases, when you have a wrongful conviction, it often means the real perpetrator uh, uh, go, goes free. And in the case of imagined crime, we know that police and prosecutors are are pushed to respond to real crime. 
So why are we looking at cases where the crime is really a suspicion, whether it's a suspicion formed with the expert witness or the police officer or something else? So I think that it's important for all of us that we get criminal verdicts as right as possible and that we recognize that any human system is going to make a mistake, but we, we, we have quick and humane ways to correct them. Right now, the wrongfully convicted really have to find evidence without public powers like the police have to find the evidence. And so what the commission will do is it will have public powers and public funds to say to the police, well, what do you have in in your files? Uh, Maybe there is something that is going to help the, the person who is in prison. Yeah, and and you mentioned the word advantaged, let alone those who aren't, right? I mean, I think that's what sort of one of the threads that runs through the book as well is that those who are least able to defend themselves are often the ones who find themselves in these situations. Exactly. And, you know, 16 of the 86 we know are, uh, are uh, of the 83, uh, are indigenous. Um, there's about four or five black um, um, wrong, black people who are wrongfully convicted, others with mental health or, or mental uh, uh, cognitive uh, difficulties. And so, yeah, so, it, you know, that's why we talk about the usual suspects, because it's often these people that come onto the radar of police and, 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 and others. Right. I mean, laying, laying bare the claim that justice, in fact, is not blind, right? I mean, it is, I think our justice system works relatively well in this country. And sometimes we look to the South and think there are more issues there with wrongful convictions. Uh, But certainly your book points out that, um, that we're we're not, we're, we're not out of the, we're not great. I mean, we're not perfect. No, and, 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 you know, when you look back at Guy Pomeran or David Milgard, David Milgard especially, it was really only when the DNA came in that people right. recognized that he had been wrongfully convicted. And I think that, you know, our, our system is better than the American system, but that actually means that we have less DNA exonerations now than they have in the United States, because in most cases, and estimates are only it's about 20% of cases will involve DNA. And when there is DNA, the police will look at the DNA. And if the DNA excludes the person, then the person is probably going to drop off as a suspect. And so, you know, we can't wait for uh, for the mill guard cases to occur again, because the police have a degree of competence that in DNA cases, they will get a warrant, they will get the DNA. And if it doesn't match, they'll move on to another suspect. Kent Roach, uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Tom Cochran, another great Canadian singer-songwriter who uh, has had uh, quite a bit to say this week about the passing of someone he knew really well, Gordon Lightfoot, someone he uh, he had met over the years, played with, played on stage with. Um, there were some updates today. Public visitation for Lightfoot is scheduled for Sunday in his hometown 
of Aurelia, Ontario. A private funeral will be held at a later date in that same uh, town of Aurelia where Lightfoot will be buried. The death notice provided by the family calls Lightfoot, quote, one of the most celebrated singer-songwriters of his generation and a, quote, national treasure and describes his songs as having become part of the Canadian cultural fabric, earning him legions of fans at home and around the globe. He passed away on Monday at the age of 84. Again, we've been talking a lot about the remarkable and lasting legacy that he left behind and heard from many, many musicians, artists, fans, Canadians in general, about what his songs meant to them. Even if they weren't huge Gordon Lightfoot fans, they all had songs that they thought were, you know, sort of told a story about this country that many other musicians do not. Um, but Lightfoot also had musicians he admired, including my next guest back in 2003. Tom Cochran was indeed asked by Lightfoot's manager to induct him into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, at least to provide the speech as uh, Lightfoot was inducted. In that speech, Cochran compared Lightfoot to a group of seven painter, a compliment that struck a real chord with Lightfoot. Uh, the two would sometimes share the stage, including an impromptu appearance by Lightfoot during a Cochran show at the Mariposa Music Festival. And while we've spoken a lot this week about how Lightfoot's music told stories that resonated with us, with Canadians, that somehow held up a physical mirror, a musical mirror to this country, Cochrane has also composed songs that are held in similar esteem, perhaps none more so than big leagues. And so when Gordon Lightfoot passed away, Tom Cochrane seemed like a musician and a friend of Lightfoot's that you'd want to hear from. And he joined me earlier today for a lengthy chat about Lightfoot, lyrics, and life. I started by thanking him uh, and asking him about the roller coaster of emotions he must have gone through over the past 48 hours. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've only cried three times when a celebrity has died. I guess a fellow celebrity, but, um, you know, one was John Lennon. Yeah. And uh, the other was Leonard Cohen. And with Gordon the other night, uh, when I heard the news, it was, it was uh, you know, we, we kind of knew it was coming. Um because I had heard that you'd taken a bit of a turn of late, and but hadn't heard too much more about it, and uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a melancholy time, you know. And if if there was a uh, Canada had a Mount Rushmore, then then Gordon would be be on it, you know. Yeah, uh, that's the way I think we all feel. Uh, he's he's as identifiable with Can Canada as you know. Uh, Mounties and icebergs <laughs> in our mountains and, and, but his beloved Georgian Bay, you know, uh, uh, he just kind of symbolized a lot of that. Lightfoot was always a very proud Canadian and, and, uh, and he was a Torontonian, but I think he, um, you know, with the Canadian railway trilogy and Edmund Fitzgerald, I mean, he just touched on so many stories that, uh, was such a great storyteller as well as a great entertainer, you know, but he, all, I think he always realized there was a higher calling to what he was doing. And it was a higher cultural calling and uh, that, that he was an artist, you know, and I remember uh, I was very flattered almost, you know, I, I've won a few awards myself and, and had a few accolades, but nothing, you know, the stuff that really gets me is when I was asked by uh, Barry Harvey, well, uh, God, God rest his soul. He was Gordon's, manager, he said, you know, Gordon wants you to present him with a singer-songwriter award. And he was the first one to, to receive it, uh, him and Hank Snow. And I was so honored to do that. And to me, that was, those those things are, are kind of almost more seminal for me than than actually 
getting awards myself. It was just such an honor to be asked to do it. And, and at the time we thought he was, he was in pretty rough shape. He had that stomach uh, ailment and we just, we didn't expect to see him and uh, we didn't know how, how bad he was, but I did early morning rain. I was nervous enough because Ian, Ian Tyson and Sylvia Tyson were right in front of me. Right. And of course they had the first great hit with, with, with that song for Gordon. And, um, and I finished the song. I'm glad I didn't know he was there. Cause I looked to the stage, right. And there he is with a big grin on his face, looking pretty skinny, but he was uh, in, in really fine form, you know? And so we were all so relieved, you know, everybody was so relieved that, uh, that Gordon showed up and, and, uh, Lo and behold, he had another 20 years in him and uh, kept playing pretty much right up until the end. You know, he came to Mariposa. That was the last time I really chatted with him. He came to Mariposa and I'd heard that he was coming out and he pretty much put, put Mariposa on the map. That was his festival and it ended up back in Aurelia. Of course, you know, Gordon was from there. Mm-hmm. And the manager, I hear a knock on our trailer door and this is about 45 minutes before showtime and, and it's Gordon's road manager. And he says, you know, Gordon's here and he wants, you know, he's, he's come to see you. And I was again, very verklempt. And he said, would you come? I said, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I went over and we started talking and talking and Gordon's regaling us with stories and Kim, his wonderful uh, wife was there. And, you know, all of a sudden I realized, Oh, we're 20 minutes late going on, but you don't cut, you don't cut Gordon Lightfoot off. Right. And he's always, people don't realize this, but he's, he's pretty humble. Like I would say shy, you know, Uh, he gets kind of, he kind of defers things away from him. When you talk, you you talk too much about his music, he almost gets embarrassed, you know? And, and so he would defer things back to, you know, how's your golf game? Tell me about that. He said, I wish I had taken that damn game up earlier. You know, I needed a hobby uh, like that. And uh, I said, well, you know, your canoe trips and and uh, things that you did in nature, uh, you know, left such a huge impact on the country, Gordon. And that's a big part of, too, why we relate to him as a Canadian you know, so much more than almost any other artist. You know, he had massive international success, but he told me once and I, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, certain trees grow in certain soils and they flourish in certain soils. And and I grow in the Canadian soil. And so that's where I stay. And uh, it's uh, a great line. I mean, it's I, I, I saw that quoted the other day and thought, wow, yeah. that's um, that's that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And he, um, you know, to 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 actually have a chance to kind of get close to the guy once in a while. And, and, um, uh, you know, I've always believed that you don't want to, you don't want to meet your heroes, right? You're, you're very so often the same goes, the time yeah. you're disappointed. Well, yeah. he, he's, he's a big exception. Leonard was a big exception as well. He was such a gentleman, but Gordon is, uh, so very generous with, with, with his time and that. And, and, uh, and always, I think left the impression with, with all of us that he was a small town boy, you know, yeah, he just and liked he to, he just liked to write write songs and play music, and he wasn't so into the fame, and he wasn't so into yeah. sort of the long in depth interviews. He just really liked to play, and sure. he liked he obviously liked other musicians too to talk about the craft. Yeah, he did, and uh, he and it was a craft for him. You know, uh, he took the Delamont series of theory, and uh, he was a very pretty schooled musician, and uh, the, the stories are 
or legendary of him spending he would they would do like sound check and pretty much the whole show and then he would spend the time after the sound check right they have somebody bring on his dinner and that he would spend that time until the time they went on stage tuning refused to use a a a, a, a tuner like a you know we use them off our phone now and that but he they would tune um, pitch pipe, I guess, or harmonica or whatever they use, but you know, and the band would be there with them. And, and, you know, for about two or three hours, he'd be doing tuning, you know, so he wanted to be such a perfectionist. Yeah. Tom Cochran is with us uh, this half hour. You'll recognize the name. Of course, we're talking about, uh, about the passing of Gordon Lightfoot, someone who Tom knew well, who would play, he played with and um, you know, they became friends over the years. Tom, I was I was talking to someone at the Great Lakes Historical Society today because I wanted to know about the impact of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And they said, of course, it changed history for them because people became so interested in in the history of Great Lakes shipwrecks. And you know that Gordon showed up for the 40th anniversary in 2015 to meet the families. And I thought, wow, like that wasn't just a song to him. That was a commitment. That was once he had put it to song, it became something that he had a responsibility towards. And I've often th- thought of Big League and you having the same sort of impact and what that must mean for a songwriter when a song becomes bigger than you, it becomes something else and, and how what that responsibility must be like. Yeah, I, I think with songs like that, and, and I'm, I'm sure Gordon felt that too, about songs like Edmund Fitzgerald, they become, they take on a life of their own in a sense. And, but it's a trust, you know, um, it, it's, it, you know, I think the whole humble thing kind of uh, yeah. put that particular kind of trust into overdrive and, and made you really, I changed the last verse and I continued to, to sing it that way because of the families of the, and, 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 you know, the humble families and, but it is a trust, you know, and it's one of those things that I, I, I take seriously. Um, and I realize that, that people out there are, 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 are there for that reason. They're, they're there to hear some of these songs that have meant so much in their lives that have, have, uh, they're like signposts for their lives, you know? I, and I, I'm always a real believer that, um, when we see a lot of something, we take it for granted, even though it may be a miracle and it may be something magical. And I think that, Music for me in, in general and in songs uh, specifically, I suppose, but music in general, it's, it's physicists can explain how the sound hits our eardrum and it vibrates and it gets communicated through uh, um, synapses and, and, and nerves and, and that into our brain and gets, it, it, you know, uh, it becomes music to us, but they don't explain the emotion. Nothing can explain the emotion. It's like trying to explain a ghost. And to me, it's God's gift to us to to show us that there is a spirit. And the spirit, because a song is so much like a life, you know, it begins and it ends, but we still remember it, right? We remember some of the people in our lives and and they're like songs. And those songs to me, it's a real gift from God to to prove that the, the soul exists, the spirit exists, and uh, and it becomes a trust when when those songs come out. And and very often, like Big League was was born almost. It was a story I had heard some months before I wrote it, and then and I knew it would end up a song. And I used to meditate in this house that we rented uh, in the West End of Toronto to to do pre production in, and you know this, that song just just. I went, I used to meditate up, it was a totally bare room and I just had a mattress there and I had a tape recorder 
and a guitar. So I, cause I'd sometimes come out of meditation, pick up the guitar and that's how that song happened. And it happened in 20 minutes. So very often the, 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 the real good, the real gems happen quickly. And then sometimes in Gordon's case, Leonard's case, those guys would toil over a lot of stuff for a long time. But Gordon did tell me once he said that, that the songs come, that, that sometimes the better ones come real quick. So I think that's sort of a common experience. And it's almost like they're born, you know, and, and the, the lyrics and the music actually came at the same time. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's like you're a vessel for the song. You kind of go, wow. My conversation earlier today with Tom Cochran, who I was really curious about, you know, I, again, I've always thought of Big League as being one of those, as one of those songs that was like a Gordon Lightfoot song. It sort of told a story about being Canadian that many other people can associate with. And of course, uh, it was a hit in many places and they play it, you know, uh, all kinds of people relate to it. You know, the idea that of um of the devoted father and, and, and the child or the devoted mother or father, I should say, the devoted parents and the child who has aspirations of being, of being, uh, being a star athlete. But uh, I always associated this. So I was really curious to hear what Tom would have to say about, uh, about Gordon Lightfoot and their playing together and, and having, you know, that, that line about the soil that you grow, that certain artists grow best in certain soil. And why would you leave it? Uh, for something else? Why would you pack up your canoe trips or, you know, your, your trips across Canada to go live in a place like LA when really your inspiration, the, the, what drives you musically and artistically is, is, is grown out of the soil of this country instead. A little earlier today, I got the chance to speak with Tom Cochran. He's one of those artists I've always really liked. I was a big fan of his when I was young. One of the first 45s I bought while living out in Edmonton in 1980 uh, was white hot. I've always been, uh, yeah, I've always really liked Tom Cochran. Amongst the many Canadian singer-songwriters that I feel really embody this place is Tom Cochran. I mean, Life is a Highway was it was big everywhere, right? Everyone laid claim to that one, but uh, he's written so many other great songs as well. And I'd read something he had given a very brief interview with the Canadian press about his memories of Gordon Lightfoot and how they were friends and how he um, delivered the speech when he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and compared him to a group of seven, compared Gordon Lightfoot to a group of seven artists and just how, how, um, how much that struck a chord with Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, and, and so I really was hoping to talk to Tom Cochran this week. It's not always easy to track people down, Dave, but uh, I managed to, uh, to get in, in touch with, uh, with his folks and uh, with his people, and, and they set us up for a chat a little earlier today. He's in Kelowna these days, actually. He's in the interior. Um, and it was a really interesting chat because, you know, he himself has had many of the same, you know, not the same kind of career path as Gordon Lightfoot, but there are parallels there. You know, there are moments of incredible success. There are moments of where things were less successful. Uh, there are, there is a, a, a library, a catalog of songs that are well-loved, well-respected. And there are those songs um, that have struck a particular chord with Canadians. When you think of uh, a lot of Gordon Lightfoot's work, but, you know, specifically the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and others, and many, many, many others that painted pictures, painted images of Canada. Well, Tom Cochran's written more than a few himself over the years. And um, when we continue to talk, uh, I, we ended the last part of that interview uh, before the break, talking a bit about Big League and, and why it was such a huge, uh, a huge record for him and why... In many ways, he felt like um, 
you know, that it was a song that took on, really took on a life of its own. Don't forget, it's been played. It was certainly a huge part. We played that acoustic version of the song before the news uh, that he recorded, particularly for the families of all the victims of the Humboldt bus crash disaster, that tragedy, and how that song has been requested so often uh, by those within the hockey community who've suffered loss, right? Um, because the song itself is about loss as well as about dreams and so forth. And so when talking to him, we finished talking a bit about the origins of Big League. And then I wanted to ask him about how I told him that it had struck me listening to Gordon Lightfoot over the last few days, listening to a lot of Gordon Lightfoot over the last 48 hours or so, and then watching that version that he plays of Big League acoustically for, for Humboldt, um, as well as many of his other songs, that countries like Canada need their songs. This is what he had to say. They do. And those those songs, like Big League, you're drawing the parallel between and I've always said that those songs that, that, that you, you, you can touch on that are, are, are songs about the experience of living in that country, but also transcend that because there's universal touchstones in, in some of those songs, things that uh, we can all relate to. You know, I know that the, the one kid that started my website was from England and he related big league to, to being a soccer player and his dad you know, driving them to soccer games and, you know, hanging a lot of aspirations on his boy going to play in the big leagues. And um, so, you know, these songs, I think it's really, I feel very blessed to have written uh, a few of these songs that that tend to touch on the the national experience and and our cultural experience as Canadians. And then they're, uh, but they're also relatable to people on, on a number of different levels. And I, th- I think good books are like that too. You know, you write them from what you know, and um, hopefully people can relate to them uh, in, in other places as well. It was a responsibility, I know, that you mentioned that uh, Gordon Lightfoot took very seriously, that, that uh, if, you, if you're writing sort of pop ditties, and this is not, to, I love a good pop ditty, but, but if you're writing little pop songs that kind of come and go, that's one thing. If you're writing songs that are meant to be, say more about who you are and where you're from, that with that comes, comes, a, bit of a, you know, you, comes a bit of a responsibility, as, as he would put it. And he took it, you compared him, I think, to a group of seven artists, and I think he thought that was the highest praise. Yeah, he he. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Barry would, would said he said to me, Gordon read that speech almost daily because I got it that he always saw himself as a group of seven painter. He even hung out, I believe, at the pilot in his right. early days, which was where the group of seven used to hang out, and uh, he saw himself very much as a painter, as as much as Joni does, you know. And they approach their work that way, like it's 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 a it's a it's a real trust. And, uh, you know, Gordon's written his share of, of, of radio songs, you know, uh, but there's always, there's always texture. There's always depth to it. There's always incredible insight to, to his work, you know, whether it's carefree highway or sundown or whatever, those, those are great radio songs. Uh, if you could read my mind, I mean, what, what a masterpiece, what a truly wonderful painting. And so that day I told you about Mariposa, we're, we're chatting. I said, ah, you know, you know, we got to get on stage. Gordon, we gotta, he goes, you want me to come up? And I go, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, yeah. Well, at what point in the show? He says, I'll tell you, tell you what, I, I just go out there. I'll just go out there right off the top. And they wow. set up a chair for him. 
the acoustic. And he, he and I said, would you play Canadian Railway Trilogy? And he goes, well, I think that's a little long winded <laughs> for this evening. And he, he said, your audience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so he, he he played to, if, if you could read my mind. And it was just beautiful. You know, it was, uh, uh, and the crowd was just enraptured by it. So I was, I'll tell you, that was, I mean, it doesn't get better than that to have Gordon Lightfoot open your show. I mean, it's like, I'm kind of going, wow, this is, this is just such an, such a cool moment, you know, and, and what a kind gesture that he did. And I think that's his way of going, Hey, thanks for, you know, presenting me there with that award there and comparing me to the group of seven painters. Cause that's the way he saw himself. And so, yeah, that was, that was, I was very verklempt when, when, uh, that happened. It was tough singing the first couple of songs, you know. Well, he's standing right beside you. Yeah. I was yeah. so well, I think he went back to the sound console. He went back to the sound console and he was back there with my good friend Ken Friesen, wonderful uh, audio guy. And he goes, well, I, re- I recognize that white hot thing. And, and he goes, Is that rap, rock and roll? <laughs> to Ken. Uh, <laughs> He's kind of a special guy. And I think after the seventies, when, when he, you know, I, I really didn't meet him until mid, mid eighties. And he was just, you know, just, just a kind, pretty shy guy. And and I was like, you know, I'll echo what Andy said, you know, I was just totally uh, in awe, you know, when he, when uh, I think he showed up, I can't remember which backstage area he showed up at, but it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. A conversation I had earlier today with Canadian rock legend Tom Cochran. Uh, I had mentioned that we had spoken to Andy Kim last night, another great Canadian singer-songwriter, and that Andy had relayed a story about meeting Gordon Lightfoot for the first time at O'Hare Airport in Chicago back in the late 60s when he was on his first tour. Andy Kim had his first top 20 hit in the U.S. at the time, and he said he basically was so starstruck that he ran up to Gordon Lightfoot and spoke a blue streak, and then uh, Lightfoot just sort of smiled and nodded at him. And as he walked away, he said, do you have any advice? And Lightfoot said, get paid in Canadian dollars. Uh, Canadian money was was above par at that point. It seems like a long time ago. Over the course of this hour, we've been playing an interview I did a little earlier today with Tom Cochran. I was really interested to hear what he had to say about the passing of Gordon Lightfoot. He was a big admirer of Gordon Lightfoot's, a friend of his. They played together. He inducted Gordon into the Songwriting Hall of Fame, gave a really touching speech comparing Lightfoot to a group of seven paintings. Uh, you know, one of the highest praises you can give a Canadian artist talking about um, just how much of an impact uh, Lightfoot had on him and on many, many others and their time together and uh, what a consummate musician he was and uh, Cochrane's memories of him as well. And also, I mean, some of the songs that Cochrane himself has written, like Big League, that, that have also taken on a life of their own, that have become uh, songs that are part of the Canadian lexicon, uh, that appeal like Gordon Lightfoot's songs to many people outside this country, but that this country holds uh, particularly dear because in some ways they do hold up a musical mirror to us, right? And that's always something special. Um, As we finished off the conversation, um, I wanted to ask him a bit about some of the advice he may have gotten over the years from Gordon Lightfoot because I had read, and I think it was Stephen Page of the Bare Naked Ladies, but it could have been someone else, that Gordon had set a template about how you handle popularity in America, because I, 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 trust me, I know nothing about this firsthand, 
But I imagine that popularity in America, having big hits in the States and what happens with that um, can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. It can devour you, especially as a Canadian artist, because it means making a move. It means making a choice. And that choice is often very easy. The border is easy to cross. Many Canadians have done it. Many Canadian artists have found fame and success and, and much more in the U.S. But was he able to keep himself rooted? How did he do it? Uh, and again, for artists, particularly musicians, it can be tough, especially back when, when so many artists were slotted into formats. It happened to Gordon Lightfoot as well. I mean, he sort of became considered to be an adult-oriented artist when he was much more complex than sort of yacht rock. Again, I love yacht rock, but much more complex than that. Um, you know, are you a pop star? Are you a country star, etc.? Um, so I asked him about how you stay how you have success in America and still keep yourself rooted in this country. Here's what he had to say. Right. Without compromise. And that's, yeah. that's the thing he, um, I think it echoes back to the, the, the roots and, and having your roots and knowing that this is where your roots are and not compromising that and not chasing it. I mean, so, some artists have been done that very well. Dylan's a good example. He came from Hibbing, Minnesota and that, and, and we all identified him, especially in the early years, uh, is, is a New York artist, an artist that, that came from the, the back country and, and um, came to New York. But, you know, he lived in Malibu and he lived in, you know, quite a few different places. Leonard was, you know, lived in, we, we associate uh, him with Greece. Yeah. Which is anything, Greece and, and of course, Montreal. But he'd always go back to to kind of tap into that, uh, you know. And, and I think Gordon... Again, because he he kept such a close, so close to his roots, I think that's that's a big part of it, and not compromising. And uh, it was pretty special that way because, to be honest with you, Ben, it was hard. Like in in the early years, the early '80s, to be an artist, and you know, management would always tell me, "Don't tell them where you're from." You know, yeah. certain artists would say, "We're from Mars," because they they you know you got to pretend, pretend you're not Canadian. I said, ah, "Forget that. I'm gonna." I'm telling people where I'm from. Of course I am. That's I'm very proud of where I'm from, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and got to know the country really well over the years, back and forth. It's one of the great privileges of what I do. You know, I'm very surprised. Sometimes I talk to certain friends, they go, what's that like out there? I've never been, never been west of Manitoba or. Yeah. Sudbury, on, Sudbury on a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we, so, but I, and, and I think Gordon was like, Gordon really kind of, I think people from all over the country identified with him and uh, with his reference to the, to the climate and his reference to, to the railway and the mountains and stuff. He he's, yeah, he, he just uh, raised him and wrote about it and it, it, it translated uh, very well internationally. Yeah. Like, like your line about when the ice starts to crack, I mean, or the, when, when the ice cracks and uh, that's, that's another yeah. one. I mean, there's things, there's little references that they're almost like Easter eggs for a Canadian audience. Cause they're little references that you get, even though the rest of the song people will listen to it and think it could be about, yeah. about anything. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's like anybody that, that lives through spring in the great lakes knows that, that as, as things warm up and the wind shifts, that's, you hear these incredible, it's almost like thunder coming from the ice, you know, and as the ice cracks and drawing that analogy between the, the, the blades on the ice and, 
I think was one of my better moments for sure. <laughs> it's a great line. I mean, there have, there have been many. Did, were you ever surprised yeah. that Gordon Lightfoot kept on playing? I mean, my dad was in, was a booking agent when I was a kid, and you know his bands loved to play. But after a while, you'd think at some point that, that Gordon was going to put his feet up. And I, I know in your case, you, you still tour quite a bit, but there must be some sort of balance that you try to achieve um, between playing and satisfying audiences that want to see you and being able to say, wait a second, I'm not going to be able to keep up at that pace. But Gordon Lightfoot played just dozens and dozens and dozens of concerts every year. I know. Well, I mean, you know, the story of the old gunslinger yep. trying to hang it up. You can't, you can't, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it's in your blood. And, and all of a sudden you realize you lose a lot of yourself. I think, you know, I, I just think, and I think Gordon was, was really dedicated to the craft and his work so much that, that, uh, I, I don't think he could have hung it up. It was just so much a part of who he was, you know, that if you do that, then, um, you lose yourself a little bit. Uh, I feel like I'm going through the same thing, you know, where I just want to play, you know, it's, it's even more so like back when you're starting out. And I think Gordon was a bit like that conjecture on my part, but I think he really thrived in the studio, but then you get go through a phase where all of a sudden what really matters. I mean, cause essentially what matters is getting that music in front of an audience that's how it all started. I mean, records just started as a promotion vehicle for, for live shows. Uh, nobody knew it would become the industry that it did. And uh, it was always about the live show. And so it gets back to that. You know, I think that Gordon really, really needed that, that energy and the, the, the lifeblood he got back from the, the audience, you know. Yeah. Andy Kim talked about only having so many heartbeats uh, in a lifetime and that if you know what it is you love to do and you know what it is that you're here for, that you might as well use those heartbeats doing that, doing that thing. And he sort of was saying it in reference to himself, but also in reference to Gordon Lightfoot. And I imagine you must feel the same way about, um, you know, people want to hear those songs. They want to hear those songs. And with that said, I mean, there was a period, I think, where Gordon said, well, you know, he wasn't sure whether he was going to make any more music, uh, but he was always sure he was going to keep playing, right? And keep singing for the audience. Um, if if he can do something, you know, something my dad said, well, Tuck said, uh, you know, if, if you find out what you do, what you love to do, and make a living at essentially your hobby, then God's smiling on you. And, that, you know, man, didn't Gordon have that, right? Yeah. He's a very grateful guy, and and uh, yeah, he he had that that quality for sure of appreciation for what he what what he brought to people, and a shyness about it too. You know, yeah, like you said, he didn't want to, it wasn't that comfortable talking about it. You know. Yeah, he was so a bit he's about a, it for him. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit like that hockey player of a few words, you know, a great hockey player who doesn't really want to talk to, but always sort of credits the team and doesn't really want to I can't I imagine I mean I've never been on stage the way you've been on stage, obviously, but you next time you step out on stage, I, I can't imagine that Gordon Lightfoot's not gonna run through your mind. Well, I always said and I think I said that in that speech too, the the the, the um his induction into the singer songwriter hall of fame. I said there, there isn't a time I go out on Georgian Bay that a Gordon Lightfoot song doesn't come into my head, you know, or I see Christian Island out there south of Perry Sound and that one of his songs doesn't come through my head. I'm dancing into my brain and uh, there's just uh, 
nobody liked him and nobody uh, ever will be like him. He's, he's, he's up there on our, our Mount Rushmore, wherever that may be. <laughs> you know? I guess it's in our minds, but any Canadian music fan knows exactly, exactly who and where you're talking about. Uh, Tom Cochran, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, pleasure's mine, Ben. Always is. And uh, keep up the great work. And God bless Gordon. And he was he was pretty special guy. Speaking of songs, there will be songs and much more. There's a concert going on for all of this. It's a big weekend. And we're already into it, really, in London, of course. It is the coronation of uh, King Charles III and Queen Camilla. And uh, there was, in fact, a rehearsal at Westminster Abbey, I believe it's called Operation Golden Orb, if I'm not mistaken. But there was a rehearsal for the royals, the king, queen, king and queen consort, and the prince and princess of Wales and their kids, of course, William and Kate, and their three kids at uh, Westminster Abbey. And uh, a relaxed-looking Charles and Camilla apparently headed to the venue with William, Kate, Prince George, Princess Charlotte, and Prince Louis. Rehearsals taking place in London on Wednesday for King Charles's coronation. The king will be crowned at Westminster Abbey on Saturday in a centuries-old ceremony. Armed forces from Britain and across the Commonwealth will march in a procession to Buckingham Palace, while the newly crowned king and queen consort travel in a gold state coach. I'm Inez de la Quatera at the ABC News Foreign Desk in Paris. There you have it. Um, keep in mind, it has been a tough winter. In England, I mean, the cost of living, you think the cost of living crisis was bad in Canada this year. In England, it was even worse. The things have been, you know, there were stories of people not being able to afford to heat their home. I mean, lots and lots of examples of people really suffering under the cost of living increase. There's labor strife right now. Brexit's been a problem. Um, you know, Canada will be involved in all this as well. We'll talk about this that tomorrow night, actually. We'll do some more on the coronation tomorrow. But I just wanted to get a new general overview tonight about what the mood was like in London ahead of this, because these are big you know, full of pageantry and so on. They're trying to bring this celebration and ceremony into the 21st century. It is a piece of history. I don't know if you'll be watching or not. I tend to watch these things only because I think to myself, maybe we will get to see another uh, coronation in the not too, too distant future. I mean, Charles is in his 70s, so um, presumably William will be king before too, 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 too long, unlike when Elizabeth became queen, uh, you know, 70 years ago. Uh, but that being said, these are moments of history, and there, there are history too. So I always like to sit and watch. I, of course, was in London for all the events around the Queen's funeral, and that was a very impactful experience as both a journalist, a person, and a Canadian. And uh, so I'll be tuning in, even though you know I, I'm not sure just how excited people are about it. I don't don't get this. I don't hear people talking about the coronation at all in Canada these days. Um, and part of it, I think, is there's been so much royal news of late between. Uh, Megan and Harry and the Oprah interview and then Harry's book and then, of course, the death of the Queen and all that surrounded that, that perhaps the coronation itself feels like a bit of an afterthought. It will still be interesting to watch, but I wanted to get a sense of what what the mood was like in London right now. To help us do that is Autumn Brewington. She's the Washington Post's opinions editor, but she's also author of their royal newsletter called Post Elizabeth, and she is in London uh, for the next while to cover all of this. Uh, Autumn, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So I, mean, I was I was there back in September for the funeral and for Queen Elizabeth's funeral, and it was certainly a, uh, an atmosphere that I hadn't seen before, which is sort of both um, one of mourning, but also one of, the, you know, there was a certain congeniality about the whole process. What's the mood like in London for this one? Because it's been a tough winter in England. 
You know, it has been a tough winter. It's turning into kind of an interesting spring. I think there are people who are pretty unhappy about the cost of living crisis, about public worker strikes, school closures, nurses striking. And at the same time, there are people clearly getting excited about the coronation. And, you know, I've just been kind of going around this week and trying to talk to people and get a sense of, are you excited about the coronation itself, which really seems to be about the institution of monarchy? Or are you actually excited about this king and queen? Overall, people are really fascinated about seeing something that people have not seen in 70 years. Beforehand here, it's just more like this question of will people turn out? Will people turn out? And definitely the way that, you know, people were camping out um, last night to see the rehearsal outside of Buckingham Palace and actually see, you know, the military marchers and just the coach going by. Um, I think people are really getting excited. Yeah, I mean, it is it is history, and it is a history that very few people living today have ever had a chance to see or let alone remember, right? Even those who would have been very young back 70 years ago. Um, when you look at, 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 I mean, they're trying to make this both a modern modern and traditional coronation, right? They're trying to make it a 21st century coronation, and that's, that, and that's not a small feat. I mean, it's not a small feat, and I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, updating a coronation ceremony that's about 400 years old. That's no easy task. And at the same time, you look at some of the changes and it's sort of like, really, they've been working on this for seven months and this is what they've come up with? Yeah, what, what for example, you, you, you pointed out some good examples in a recent newsletter. Well, so they have made, and I do think it's significant that this was a predominantly Protestant ceremony. This is really, this is a religious service. Whereas, you know, we've seen recent coronations for European monarchies, those are much more sort of the king gets sworn in in front of parliament. This is an anointing. This is a, a religious service in Westminster Abbey. And for the first time, the service is structured to acknowledge that Britain is a multi-faith, multicultural country that includes you know, people of no faith. And they will have representatives of different faiths, you know, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish. I think because this is happening on Saturday, the rabbi is going to be off mic out of mm -hmm. respect for the Sabbath. We're going to hear the prime minister do a reading as, you know, sort of another representative of a different faith. And also there will be women, you know, involved, and that's a first for a coronation ceremony. But when you look at some of the statements about, you know, the idea of we'll have an homage from the people and people everywhere will be invited to swear allegiance to the king, they, they've really emphasized or tried to emphasize that this is about the king's duty and service, and he will serve the people. But I think inviting people to shout, may the king live forever, really seems about fealty to him. It, it, it's one of those ones that must have sounded good on paper because they thought, you know what, we'll just let everyone do it if they want, right? It'll be your choice if you want to pledge allegiance to the king. And yet, technically, they're asking everyone to pledge allegiance to the king, which which is, you know, it, you're right, the way you put it, it did seem a little bit um, backward looking. Yes. And for for what the ceremony was, and it was even, you know, longer before this is an update. I think one question is just, is this 21st century? Do they want it to be 21st century? And when you look at some of the statements that have come from Lambeth Palace, you know, the residents of the Archbishop of Canterbury, mm -hmm. they were really enthusiastic about this and saying, well, it's the first time that, you know, people have been invited to pledge an homage. And after 
kind of people started looking at this and reacting on Monday. I think they were putting out statements saying, well, people won't be forced to do it. They'll just be invited to do it. it it's that it's that delicate balance between tradition and modernity, right? It's a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to find when you're when essentially the, the institution itself is steeped in all these values that many of us don't really share anymore at all. Uh, and yet here it is. Right. And, and it's going to be an interesting I mean, it was interesting how the funeral was arranged. It was it'll be interesting how the coronation is done as well. You asked about Charles and Camilla. What is the sense of the new king and the new queen? Are, are, are people excited about them and the event or more the event? I think at the end of the day, they as a couple are not people who deeply excite others. There seems to be quite a lot of respect for him and his many years of advocacy for, you know, environmental issues and climate change. And I think she has become much more popular over time and is accepted as queen. What about all the so the, some of the other storylines you must have been looking at? I can't imagine you would you wouldn't be looking at what's going on with Meghan and Harry. So last I heard, Mar- Harry's going to be there. We don't know what he's up to, and Meghan's staying home with the kids. Is that is that is that right? That's correct. Harry's going to be here very briefly for his father's coronation, and then flying home Saturday, uh, May sixth is the fourth birthday of Harry and Meghan's son Archie. Archie, right? There, you know, presumably are lovely birthday celebrations going on in California. And it sounds like Harry is going to get back to that part of his family pretty much as soon as he can. How much has the the sort of the, the family drama within, you know, the, the, and not the royal family, this is a family drama. How much has that, do you think, weighed on this event? Because we have the, you know, Camilla sort of has, has was for a long time sort of not particularly popular. Now she'll be queen. Uh, there's the memories of Diana, obviously. And then you have this whole issue with Harry and, and his brother and his dad. You know, it's kind of funny. The timing in some ways The Queen passed away in September, and then Harry and Meghan's Netflix program, their docuseries, came out in December, and then you had Harry's bombshell of a memoir in January. I think now, you know, it's early May, and people understand there's a rift in this family, and Harry has said for a while, he also said again on his book tour, he wants his family back, he wants his brother and his father back. He also said he wants a family and not an institution, sort of raising this question of how does he get one without the other? Yeah, he is the institution. I mean, let's be frank. Without it, he's not much, right? I mean, no offense to Harry. He can't criticize one without harming the other, I think. So partly, you know, you had this kind of tidal wave of reporting in January when his book came out. And his book is pretty harsh on Camilla. I mean, he says outright that she had a reputation that she was trying to rehabilitate and that she did so by trading negative, you know, stories about him to the media in exchange for positive press. And that's an incredibly damning accusation. It is. Um, And at the same time, you know, really what's going to happen on Saturday doesn't have anything to do with Harry or Meghan, this is about 
the institution of the monarchy and continuity. A hereditary monarchy is not a popularity contest, even if the monarch isn't particularly popular, right? I mean, that's that's the truth of it. That's the bottom line. However, right. these days, I was interested, you know, Princess Anne gave an interview with this, to the CBC this week, and she, you know, she said the good thing about Charles is you know what you're getting. Like, he's been practicing for this job for a very long time. And she sort of dismissed the whole idea of, of you know, about whether they're worried about the relevancy of the monarchy, that their job is simply to support the king and that this institution shall continue. But do you get the sense there that, that anyone feels like this coronation matters more perhaps than any other in in recent memory or distant memory for that matter uh, when it comes to what the future of the monarchy is going to look like do is there an idea there are a lot of eyeballs on this one thinking you better get this right and do we still need this the idea of do we still need this is this going to be the last big coronation because what we have now is so different from what happened in 1953 then Prince Charles did actually go to his mother's coronation. He was such a young child. I think he was four years old at the time. Now the heir to the throne is a 41-year-old man. So he is seeing up close everything that's happening. And he'll really be able to look at this and decide, you know, when his time comes, what does he want to retain or maybe say, actually, like, we don't need to spend millions of dollars on this. On the one hand, it's Britain, and so it's kind of like the pomp and ceremony feels baked in. But I think if there was were going to be kind of a big change, we'd probably see it with the next generation. And I mean, I think it's so interesting that, you know, William's oldest son, Prince George, he's going to be part of the coronation service. Um, He's one of the pages of honor for the king. And I kind of loved in 1937, then Princess Elizabeth wrote an account of her parents' coronation it's just such an interesting historical document. I really hope someone has, you know, Prince George do that after he has this experience as well at a young age. Yeah, I wonder if it'll be like emojis. And, and so, I mean, why wouldn't it, right? It's, 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 we're, <laughs> we're in modern times. Anything in yeah. particular that, I mean, I know you've cut, you covered some of these events. Anything in particular you're looking forward to on Saturday? Uh, I mean, it is history, right? And you forget when you sort of talk about it you know, sort of in, in, in a separated kind of way, that in fact, it really is history. And this doesn't come along often. It doesn't come along often. I mean, I think one thing that I've really wondered about and sort of looking at and talking to people this week is just thinking about the difference between how Americans and really kind of any foreigners view the monarchy as opposed to how British people live with it. You know, for British people, the idea of, you know, this ceremony, of course, there's going to be this ceremony. And so really this question of, you know, when you think about updating and change, it's a question for this country and other countries such as Canada, where the sovereign is the head of state. You know, how comfortable are you with the updates? Do you want more updates? Do you want a head of state who is elected as opposed to one born to the role? I think those populations are going to have to answer those questions. Yeah. And what time will you will you be getting up on on Saturday morning? I remember it's <laughs> it's a security cordoned off. It's it's very tightly cordoned off. So I imagine you'll have to be up early to get down there for a decent perch. My hotel is close, but it's definitely still going to be dark out. <laughs> well, I wish you luck with all that, Autumn Brington. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Henry, aren't you nervous? Do you doubt me? Of course not. But in four months, you've done the impossible. You've taken Bigfoot from the American wilds and taught him manners and how to comport himself in high society. Well, I have to admit, it was a long road. But the past three days have gone perfectly. 
He played polo and bridge and had one of his poems published in a ladies' magazine. Mm. You should be so proud. And there he is. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you my student, Monsieur Grandpied, also known as Bigfoot. Charmed. I'm Bigfoot. It's been the subject of much, much, much writing over the years, right? There was Stop and Tom's Sasquatch song and Bigfoot on Saturday Night Live. That goes back, back a while. Um, and we've, we that, read this story this week about this group of Squatchers, as they're known. There's 140 of them. And there's a student society at Trent University in Peterborough dedicated to Sasquatch, to the history, to the research, to finding, to going out and investigating reports about possible sightings and so on. Now, I'm going to lay my cards on the table here and say that I'm not really entirely convinced about this, uh, to say the very least. I'd be excessively skeptical. But I've known people over the years, people that I've worked with, who are real Squatchers. They will tell you all about why um, Bigfoot exists and why they think it's possible, right? So it's just one of those things. Uh, we thought we would talk to them with a very, you know, with an open mind. But keep in mind, of course, that uh, this is something that I don't fully, fully believe in. Uh, one of the best comedians I saw talk about this is he said that the reason the photos of Sasquatch are always so fuzzy is because they're 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 fuzzy. Anyway, I mean, you know the history, right? It goes back. I mean, the legends of, of of similar creatures go back beyond recorded history, cover the entire planet. Uh, here in North America, one of the most fertile areas for Sasquatch uh, stories has been the Pacific Northwest, um, mainly in in you know in the in sort of associated with with trees, with forests, and people and lumber lumberjacks, so to speak, and all these stories about sort of seven foot tall, hairy creatures stalking the woods and so forth. And that all started back in like the 1800s and into the 1900s and uh, sporadic encounters, a few grainy photos, and then videos came along. There's a famous, famous one. I think it was shot in California in the fifties. That's considered to be sort of the video. Um, and lots of people who claim to have seen them, right? Have different theories about what they look like and so on. I'm not judging any of you. I'm not judging any of you. It doesn't, doesn't, I have no skin in this game. But the debate, the research continue, entire organizations exist to study and document Bigfoot and prove its existence and groups regularly search the woods looking for ultimate proof. Um, you know, I, I didn't know this actually till I looked into it today that Sasquatch comes from the Salish word, which I'm going to mispronounce, but Sasquits, S-A-S-Q-U-I-T-S, and there are many other different variations on it all over the place. Uh, but we were interested as to what these university students were up to. Uh, this is a society um, at, again, at the uh, university or Trent University in Peterborough, and it's called the Trent University Sasquatch Society, an official club with some 140 squatchers. It's registered with the school's student union as well. They go out on explorations. They trudge through the woods. They follow up on tips they get, and uh, they meet online for weekly Q&As with Sasquatch researchers and enthusiasts like the cast of Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot series. So we gave them a call, and they said, sure, we'll talk to you. Ryan Willis is founder and president of Trent University's uh, Sasquatch Society, and Joel Porter is vice president of uh, Self Same Society, and they join me now. Thank you so much, Ryan and Joel. Thanks for having us on, Ben. Uh, Ryan, I guess as founder, I'll start with you. Uh, what was the uh, what was your interest in this, and, and why did you decide to uh, to try and make this a society at the school? 
Yeah, I've always been super interested in uh, Sasquatch research from a, a very young age. I, I kind of found some of the TV programs about it uh, when I was very young. And, and, and as I got older, I'd always do uh, everything I could to, to learn more about the subject. And uh, I'd go out in the woods uh, whenever I could to try to uh, see see what I could find. So, And then by the uh, the time I got to university, um, I met a few other people there at Trent who who also had an interest. And we uh, kind of realized we, we had enough people to uh, create a society. So that's what we did. And uh, yeah, now we're uh, we're doing all this. And then it's also kind of led to the, uh, the show we're doing for uh, for Wild TV, Sasquatch yeah. University. So it's been a really cool, yeah, path. I guess uh, doing doing all this and being uh, a part of Sasquatch research. So it's right. been really cool. Same story for you, Joel. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember the, reading a Tainte book in Tibet, and there was a, a Yeti in it, and I thought, oh wow, how cool is that? Is same story for you uh, in terms of being sort of interested in this from a young age? Uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty similar. I joined the society in its second year, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, from from a young age, I've uh, especially the outdoors, I I enjoy camping and and canoeing and things like that for me. And then Sasquatch just just allows a combination of the two things. You know, I can I can go out in, in the outdoors and uh, and also look for Sasquatch. So I, you, yeah, you you must. I mean, I've I've read this. I mean, you know, Sasquatch aside. Uh, if, if Peterborough isn't necessarily known to be fertile territory, even even in the lore of Sasquatch. So what do you do? What's what's a, what's a what's an excursion like for the group? Typically, uh, when we're at the school in Peterborough, we'll take uh, a group of whichever students want to want to come uh, to whichever particular excursion event we're, we're having at that time. And uh, yeah, we'll go out to an area that uh, we've received some reports from and we'll go out and see see what we can find, do different things. And then, um, you know, another thing that we're, we're really big on is having uh, speakers from the Bigfoot community come in and give uh, lectures essentially to the society. So we do a lot of that. Yeah, we've had some some really cool speakers uh, over over the time the uh, the society's existed. But uh, yeah, I would love to uh, if we ever got the the budget from the school, uh, get get a, a group of us and go out to BC or, or you know one of those places where um, yeah, obviously there's a, a lot more uh, reports and um, you know this is something uh, we we'd love to do. But uh, but yeah, for now we we typically go to different parts of uh, Ontario where we've uh, been getting reports and and you know see what we can uh, see what we can find. Because the legend of Sasquatch, of course, is very much in, in not. I mean, it exists. The idea of a quote-unquote Bigfoot, so to speak, exists in many parts of the world, but the Sasquatch legend is very much a Pacific Northwest, West Coast one, right? Yeah, yeah, and the term uh, kind of originated out, out west there too, but I mean, um, if if you look at the reports and the, the descriptions, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty uh, apparent that there are reports of the the same creature being uh, spotted across North America. So I think, uh, at least for me, and um, you know, there's a few other terms too, but the term, you know, Sasquatch and Bigfoot, uh, at least at the society, are kind of used interchangeably. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely, um, you know, based on on the all the reports, really seems like it's the same creature that that people are seeing across North America, and then in a lot of other parts of the world too. Call it what you will, but uh, it's it's certainly uh, an interesting creature um, for for sure. Right. Uh, what, what do you? I, for, I should have asked. What do you both study, Ryan and Joel? What, what what's your major? Um, I'm in uh, Canadian cultural studies. Yeah, and uh, I'm in Greek and Roman studies. Right. 
so so i mean you you know your you know your lore as well right you're you're sort of is that part of the interest here because you know of course you you're i'm sure you're both very well aware of the long his debate over the existence of said said creature anywhere in the world right but does it matter does it matter whether whether there's actually such a thing or is it more just being part of what has been a long and interesting history of looking for it yeah, I think that in itself is, is obviously really cool. But, um, you know, I, I personally believe that there there is, uh, you know, these creatures are out there. But I mean, uh, I think we do have a lot of uh, people, though, with, within the society who have kind of different views and different beliefs, um, not just on whether Sasquatch does or doesn't exist, but but what they even are, which I think is kind of a, another cool rabbit hole that uh, we, we go down a fair bit. But yeah, so you, so, you argue, you argue within the society, but what, what exactly yes, the society should yes. really, tell me, tell me about well, that, Joel, <laughs> tell me about that, Joel. <laughs> well, it, it depends. So we've had some interesting speakers there. There are very different theories on, on what Sasquatch is or, or possible origins. You know, there's some people who think it's related to UFOs or portals or orbs. You know, there's 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 biblical connections that that some people make. I've always been of the, the belief that if they are out there, then the government already knows about them, right. and uh, and you know that they they probably they probably wouldn't tell us if if they are indeed out there, and and that is that is a point of contention with a lot Within of different society. researchers. Yeah, and and I think personally, if if a creature like this would be out there, you know, the military is out performing all these operations out in the middle of nowhere there's there's loggers there's 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 other things there's there's thousands of sightings but you know if there was a body i i think the government would probably have it <laughs> right i mean it all starts to sound a little a little strange if you're not in it right if you're not part yeah. of it yeah for um, sure because i mean the, the obvious question is i mean we know first of all from biology that it might be difficult for a, for a species such as that to 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 maintain itself right you can't live live by yourself but that's all the scientific side aside we don't have to argue about that but i always thought in mean, these days there would be a photo of one right like there'd be there i know that people argue that there are but yeah i mean again i i guess it doesn't does it ryan does it really does it really matter if they if they exist um, I think it definitely matters because it, it would obviously be, um, you know, huge for for science and in so many things. Uh, if if um, conclusive evidence that uh, these this uh, species existed came to light, and I think there is a lot of evidence. Um, you know, like you you mentioned uh, some of the pictures, which which are uh, heavily debated, and then there's a lot of other things with uh, within science that that people talk about. And we have a lot of students. Um, like Trent's a very big science school, so we have a lot of students that are uh, in biology in in different science programs so we we have a lot of those uh, discussions within the society which which is always fun and uh, you know hearing yep. what what different students uh, have to say about it but because i guess the biology of it's part of the real argument here that you know in terms of evolution of a species we kind of understand how species evolve and survive and it would be hard for a species to evolve and survive in the conditions described for for said you know the, the many different the many different iterations of sasquatch around the world the sort of these isolated human-like things it would be it'd be kind of it would be tough yeah no for sure especially in some of the areas we we get reports um i mean some have been pretty surprising i mean like i i think the last summer i heard of of one or two being seen in in england of all places which i still, that'd, that'd I still be tough. 
<laughs> yeah, I still kind of struggle with that. But um, yeah, so and then there's other places, obviously, that uh, it would be a lot easier for, um, you know, a creature such as this to, to live and exist and, and remain hidden. Right. But, uh, but yeah, some of the, the places you, you really, uh, you know, wonder, but but we do, uh, you know, take every piece of information given to us, uh, especially report wise. So we always uh, listen and, and try to analyze uh, what, what's given and uh, yeah, see what you know, all of us kind of kind of think of it and, and go from there. But but yeah. yeah, there's certainly some interesting ones for sure. Tell me about the TV show. What's that? What's that all about? Or the show? What's it all about? Yeah, so uh, we're doing a show called uh, Sasquatch University for the the Wild TV Network. It's uh, about us, uh, me, Joel, and our other co-host Cody going out and uh, and looking for Bigfoot uh, within Ontario. So we're going, uh, you know, kind of across the province to, to different places where we've received uh, an abundance of reports from. And then we go and meet with the people that have uh, have seen these Bigfoots and uh, yeah, go from there. And then we'll go out, do, do night investigations and, and things like that. And we'll try to bring in other technology and equipment to, uh, yeah, see, see what we can find so uh we've already done some some filming we've done a a couple uh episodes and everything and um yeah it's been it's been really interesting and uh yeah so i'm excited for people to see it and i think it'll be a a really cool uh a really cool season do you ever have trouble at at, at, you know family gatherings or dinner parties when this issue comes up for joel (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i'm curious how does that work <laughs> you uh, you sit there, you put your head down, you hope no. I don't really, uh, I don't really talk about it too much. Uh, I don't know. It's it's normally like a, it's a pretty lighthearted thing. It's 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 not politics. It's not like if you come home from Thanksgiving, who'd you vote for? It's right. it's you know you you can talk about it, and it, it's it's not like it's not like I get into arguments with with yeah. family members. Or things people like aren't that. too dogmatic about it, right? No, no, no. It's like I believe in Sasquatch. Yeah, it's, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan, same uh yeah i mean you know my family uh i i wouldn't say that they're believers themselves but uh but yeah the, you know they'll they'll always be you know making making jokes and things and, and you just get other people asking you i mean really the most annoying thing i i find is like anywhere you go just people will always make like bigfoot jokes like uh, like they'll be like oh there's a hairy guy maybe he's bigfoot and it's just like you you just it's, it's like it's, it's not really funny to begin with just because the joke itself like isn't and then and then they, you just keep hearing it all the time and you're kind of like like you know well, right if it's, any, you if it's any comfort to you uh you know as long as this has been debated people have been making terrible jokes about it so yeah. uh there you go <laughs> ryan and joel thank you so much for this uh interesting yeah thanks yeah, for, thank having you for having us, us. Uh, yeah we're here uh, anytime you you want us back so it's uh, it's been great talking with you ben 